It is written. The Gospel of Luke says, even though all of heaven and earth will pass away, my word will remain true forever. It is written. The book said to hide this in your heart and is to consume of this thing constantly. The Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was the Word. It is written. Is this actually what that scripture is saying? It is written. Good morning. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. If you don't have a traditional Bible and you'd like to have one, just raise your hand. One of my friends will bring you one. You can either borrow that or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. Or you could take your smart device, open up the version, or it's called the Bible app. And if your location services are enabled, all the notes and scriptures are already going to pop up on there. If you are watching us on our online campus or at one of our many services at the Brown County Correctional Facility. We love you guys and so glad that you're part of our family and so glad that you are part of our family. So clap for yourself today on a Get Back on Track Sunday. So in case you're wondering, yes, I am live. This is me. I am in person. This is not a video or a holographic image of myself. I am not Max Headroom. And so thank you to all of you. If, you're, if this is your first week, you're like, what is he talking about? Thank you to all of you who let me, uh, you loaned me out. Yeah, I guess we could call it. You loaned me out to the pack. And so, so glad I was in Kansas City and, and then I was in LA. Uh, but today, I'm so glad to be here. Super excited about next week. We're starting a new series that uh, we've never done this before, but Pastor Sonny and I actually are writing a series together. And so we're super excited about it. We're going to talk about caves and we're going to spend five or six weeks coming into Christmas talking about the different caves in all of our lives. And I'm going to do one. She's going to do one. We're going to do one together, which we've never done before. And so we're so excited about it. If you do have a friend who wants to have their baby dedicated, or maybe you're here and you've never had your baby dedicated, then we're going to do that also next Sunday. And so, so glad that we get to be a part of this. This actually, as Pastor Sonny said, is the final week in this series of messages that we've been in that I feel like I can never say those three words differently again, like it is written. I feel like every time I read that in scripture now, the music drops. I feel like it should be in like an 85 Cutlass Supreme laid back. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, Holmes, what's up? Like, it just feels like it's it's totally rewritten the scriptures for me. And I hope that it's been challenging to you because it's definitely been challenging for me. And I think it's been really challenging just because of the sheer volume of information that we've uh, squeezed into the past month of messages. And today is actually the bonus track. It's like the hidden track on the CD, if you remember what those are. It's the encore. You know the song that your favorite band plays after they left the stage and waited and hoped that you would call them back out? You're like, how did they not play Hotel California? Like, I went to see Earth, Wind & Fire, and they didn't play the song September. I was like, are you kidding me? That's your jam. And like, they waited. They were like, wait, let's leave. Let's not play this song so that when we leave, they'll need more. So we'll have to come back out. That's what this song is. And that's what this message is this whole idea that you guys really gave me feedback that caused us to have to write a whole nother message. And so today I want to talk to you about a couple of things that you've been wondering about in a message that we're calling, What's Up 
with that. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for my friends in this place. God, I pray blessings on their lives. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be changed. I pray that you would empty us of ourselves so that you can fill that space with you. I pray that we would leave here a little bit less like us and a little bit more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So I love when people email me and ask me questions. Now, due to uh, some of our schedule constraints, I sometimes, uh, it takes me a little longer to get to those emails uh, than I'd like to, but, but I really do love when people email me questions because it shows me that you're digging. And so because you're digging, that requires that I continue to dig. It, it requires that I don't put this thing on cruise control and, and just let it just become something that I do off the top of my head. And so keep them coming. I got lots of questions throughout this, uh, these last five or six weeks, but of all the questions that I got during this series, this one stuck out. How did what we see in our Bible get in our Bible? Or another way that it was asked was, who got to decide which scriptures were included in the Bible? And that, that's a great question, but before I can answer that question, we have to understand something. The contents of the Bible or the contents of our scripture are what is called the biblical canon, or it is called the canon of scriptures. And what a canon is, is the set of texts or books that a particular religious community has deemed or has determined to be authoritative. And the word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, which means reed. It was a reed or a rod that was used as a measuring stick. And that reed was actually used as the acceptable measurement of all things. That reed was the standard. So so when it comes to scripture, the biblical canon or the canon of scriptures is the officially accepted list of books. And it was meant to be the standard for your life, the thing that you were meant to measure your life against. And in religion, there are two types of canons. There is what you call a closed canon, and then there is what you call a continual canon. And in Christianity, we subscribe to what is called a closed canon of Scripture, meaning that books can neither be added nor removed from it. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the author, the disciple, and the apostle John said, if anyone adds to or takes away from this book, there are going to be consequences. And the reason for that is because the period of public revelation has ended. So when you hear someone tell you that they have a new revelation, now, it's not that people don't get new revelations. It's not that people don't get new inspirations. But anytime somebody comes to you and they say, I have a new revelation, that revelation has to be measured against the scriptures. It has to be filtered through the scriptures. It has to be measured or filtered through the standard. Because, I mean, the the whole thing, this whole story started with a person adding to God's word. And it's going to end with a person adding to God's word. Let me explain. It started with humanity being deceived in Genesis chapter 3. And we've read that story and and we think we know that story. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see the deception of Eve. And in that deception, Eve actually added to God's word. Watch this. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any 
other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, watch this, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And we've read that, we've accepted that, we've adopted that. The problem is, that's not what God said. Look back at Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it, and you will surely die. What did he say? God said, Don't eat the fruit. But what did she say? She said that God said, don't eat it or touch it. She added to God's word. Small difference, small detail, but we all know that the devil is in the details. So this whole thing started with a person adding to God's word, and it's going to end with a person adding to God's word. In the book of Revelation, it tells us about a false prophet who is going to come, and he will look like a lamb, but he will speak like a serpent. And, and so he's going to take the word of God and he's going to twist it and he's going to manipulate it and he's going to massage it and he's going to make it sound oh so good. And when those, those ideas and those concepts come out, even many believers will go, ooh, maybe that's what God said. So we will rewrite things. We will rethink things. We will reconsider things. And, and, and it's important that we know that this stuff is going to happen in the end. Because we need to be able to measure every revelation against Scripture. So, we as Christians subscribe to a closed canon of Scriptures. But there are some religions who still subscribe to what's called the continual canon of Scriptures. And some of those religions are trying to present themselves as if they are the same as us. They're trying to rebrand themselves. They're trying to market themselves. They're trying to portray themselves as the exact same thing as us. For example, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. They have a huge marketing campaign that is happening right now to try to convince Christians that they are the same as us. The problem is they are not the same as us, and it comes down to a core level of their understanding of the canon of scriptures. They subscribe to a continual canon of scriptures. The Mormon church, founded by Joseph Smith, who between 1830 and 1833 recorded a series of new revelations, and he literally rewrote the Bible for his people. And so you have to be very cautious of anyone who says that they have a new revelation or that they have a new word, and you have to measure that through our canon of scriptures. But who determined what our canon of scriptures would be? Now, I'm sure you know this, but the Bible is actually not just a book. It is a collection of books gathered into one volume or gathered into one book. 66 books that are gathered into one book. So the question is, who decided which books got into our book and which ones, uh, which ones made those, what made those particular books acceptable and what made other books not acceptable? Well, first... Contrary to what Dan Brown asserts in the Da Vinci Code, it was not determined by the Roman Emperor Constantine. Now, I read the Da Vinci Code. I actually thought it was a pretty good book, but I actually thought that it was a dangerous book for people who don't know the Bible or who don't know their biblical history. Because Brown, the author, presents as facts this idea 
that the Emperor Constantine simply made a unilateral decision of what would be included when he commissioned 50 copies of the Bible for the churches in his capital city, Constantinople. But honestly, Constantine played no role in the Bible's formation. The truth is, the 39 books of the Old Testament made up the Bible of Judaism, and then the Christian Bible adds an additional 27 books that are called the New Testament. And this complete list of books was found acceptable, not because the church created the canon, but because the churches and the councils gradually accepted the list of books that were already recognized by believers everywhere as inspired. That, that word inspired just means God breathed or divinely inspired. They were simply acknowledging the fact that these books possess the stamp of God's approval. So the canon that we see, the 66 books, was not some quick unilateral decision made by one man. It was the product of centuries of reflection by dozens and dozens of chosen leaders who were guided by five principles. Five questions they used as a filter. Here's the first. Was the book written by a prophet of God? Like, like uh, even, even while scripture was being written, some of the people who were writing scripture were acknowledging the fact that some other people were writing scripture. For example, Peter recognizes that Paul was writing scripture and tells his followers, pay attention to what it is that Paul is writing because this is the divinely inspired word of God. Likewise, Paul was recognizing to his followers that Peter was writing divinely inspired scripture. And so even back then, so they would ask themselves, was this written by a prophet of God? Meaning a person who was with God or a person like, uh, like a person walked with Jesus or this person was divinely like intertwined with God. So like when you look in the New Testament, Peter wrote some things. He, he, was, he was one of the disciples. Paul wrote some things, and they knew that he had this revolutionary encounter on the road to Damascus. But then there's a guy like Luke, and Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and, and he wrote uh, the book of Acts. And he was, he was kind of validated because he was personally mentored by Paul, who was a prophet of God. So if it was written by a spokesman of God, they determined it was the word of God. Here's the second, is was the book accepted by the people of God? Like, like if it was universally read and used by the people of God, they understood that it was the word of God. Like there are books that were being used. Obviously, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah, the, the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, like they ought, everyone all the way back, they recognize that as God's word. And, and even Jesus himself, Jesus himself on a number of occasions quoted the book of Isaiah. So, so there were churches that were in existence and they were, they were functioning, or synagogues before the New Testament church who were functioning in and using particular portions of scripture. And so the men who were canonizing the scriptures determined if this was a book that was universally accepted by the people of God, then it was the word of God. Here's the third. Was the book confirmed by the acts of God? And throughout scripture and throughout history, there have been lots and lots of false prophets, people who have portrayed themselves as prophets of God. And one of the things that was used universally to separate false prophets from true prophets was miracles. And miracles, by definition, are acts of God that confirm the word of God given through a prophet of God to the people of God. 
So if it was confirmed by the acts of God, they deemed that it was the word of God. Here's the fourth. Did its message tell the truth about God? And church fathers maintained a very simple formula for this, a very simple policy. If in doubt, throw it out. See, I live my life by a peace concept. When I have to make a decision, I pray about it, I look in scripture, I consult people who are godly people, and then I trust my peace. If, if I don't feel a peace about something, like if, I, like if I'm considering doing something and I have a, like, a, like th this is what Christians would say, if I have a check, hello, in my spirit, then I don't do it. Like I just go, like what, what a check in your spirit is, is if you're about to do something and you're like, Ugh, then just y'all don't do it. That just, it's not... Uh, the right thing. If, if you got a guy and he's hollering at you and you think, you know, you're lonely, 47, you know, you've been alone for a minute. He's not really cute. Brushes his teeth three times a week. He flips it over. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and you're like, eh, mm-mm. Keep Keep it moving, homeboy. Keep, keep, keep it moving. You know, there's, there's some things that, that God will just, uh, you'll have like a, like a thing that'll, that'll just, you think it's indigestion, but it's really uh, the Holy Spirit. Okay, here's the fifth, is, is does the book come with the power of God? The Word of God tells us that it is alive and it is active, so it should be a transforming force. And so if the message of a book didn't have the power to change people, then God apparently wasn't behind the message. And so that message, that book did not get into the canon. And these five questions, these five filters, these five principles explain what made particular books acceptable and others not acceptable. They explain why our Bible, the evangelical Bible or the Protestant Bible only includes 66 books and doesn't include a number of books that some of you may have even grown up seeing in a copy of the scriptures. For example, the Apocrypha. And, and, and here's why those books aren't included in our Bible. And please understand, I'm not trying to offend anybody. So I'm not here to give my opinion because opinions come and go. They, they change in the night. They're like headlines. They can be one day and then the next day they can be gone. So I'm not giving you my opinion. I just felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to give you some facts. And what you do with those facts, y'all, that's up to you. I don't make the news. <laughs> I just report it. And so there, there are a number of books, some of which are called the Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical. That's, that's like inner language for what these books are called. They're called Deuterocanonical books. And Deuterocanonical literally means second canon, which means that certain religious leaders at some point opened up a closed canon so that they could insert books that were not considered scripture prior to what was called the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation happened 1,400 years after the canon was closed. So we had a group of people who literally attempted to rewrite the Bible for their people. And here's why. Because those books were largely added as a way to provide scriptural support for doctrines they were practicing in spite of having no scriptural support. Like praying for the dead. There is no scriptural support in the 66 canonical books for praying for the dead. So a group of dudes canonized a book 
It is called 2 Maccabees because 2 Maccabees talks about praying for the dead. And instantly, they now had scriptural support for an action that was intended to tell man's truth rather than God's truth. Because unlike the New Testament books, which claim to be inspired by God, none of the apocryphal books ever actually make that claim. No apocryphal book was written by a true prophet or apostle of God. No apocryphal book was confirmed by divine miracles. No apocryphal book contains predictive prophecy, which would have served to confirm divine inspiration. And so those books, they were not left out of the canon of scripture for personal or political reasons. They were left out because they didn't answer the questions, because they didn't pass through the filter, because they didn't fulfill the five principles. So those books, although they are beautiful books, like I think the book of Judas, like they have the gospel of Judas, and I don't know if you remember this, but the History Channel, they ran this huge thing about the gospel. They found a book, and oh, it's the gospel of Judas. It's so great. And they found it somewhere, and it was like, are you kidding me? And they did, they, nobody tested it. They did a huge TV show about it, and nobody even asked like one critical question. Could it possibly have been the disciple Judas who wrote the book? I don't know if you read this one. This is part one. But in part one, he's dead. I'm just saying. So like, they have a dead guy writing a book and calling it scripture. And I go, that really is a miracle. I didn't even know dead people could write books. But it's miraculous. And so like, they're beautiful. They're, they're, just, they're just not canonical. And because of that, that leaves us with 66 books collected into one volume, translated from three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And they're translated into this beautiful, inspiring, revolutionary document that is life-changing, world-changing, heart-changing, and often confusing. Which is why there are so many versions, or why there are so many translations, which can unfortunately create even more confusion. Because when somebody first becomes a believer, like uh, my first Bible was just whatever Bible the homeboy who led me to Jesus gave me. And to me, that was authoritative. That was the book. And when somebody tried to give me another version, I was like, uh-uh, play no, mm -mm. this. This is, I've been reading this for three weeks. This is the one. This is, you know what I'm saying? And the, why is this the one? Scott gave me this one. And because Scott gave me this one, the guy who led me to Jesus, he put his stamp of approval on it. And so for me, that was the one. And it took me a minute, y'all, to be able to accept the fact that perhaps there are different versions or different translations that, that could be authoritative. And it created a little bit more confusion into me, like, like which one is the right one? To which I would say, there isn't a right one in general, but there may be a right one for you. That all depends on your personal preference. Like, like which one do you like? <laughs> Like when you read one, maybe it's like, eh, but when you read another one, you're like, oh yeah. Like if the, read the, oh yeah one, don't read the, eh, one. Like there's one that you read it and you go, yeah, I could get down with that. Which again, like picking that can be daunting. It, it can be daunting to determine which one you want on your own. So I thought for your sake, I would take a two hour seminar on biblical translations and I would shrink it into four minutes. Cool? Okay, so there, there are three different types of translations. 
The first is called a formal equivalency. It is also called an exact equivalency, meaning that it was translated word for word. Scholars who understood those original languages got together, went to the original manuscripts, and translated them word for word. And the only challenge to translating any ancient document word for word is that sometimes grammar changes over periods of time. Plus, we're not using the same type of grammar that they used in the Hebrew or the Greek languages. Plus, 2,000 years have passed, okay? So there are translations that are word for word. And here are some examples of formal or exact equivalencies. The King James Version, which has all the old English in it. It's like the Shakespeare Bible. And, and for some reason, there are people who revere this version like it is the only English translation. It is as if God is from England or something. But y'all, God is not from England. If he were a, he's probably, he wouldn't even be white. Okay, so he understands modern English too. You can talk in slang. You can talk however you talk. He gets, he gets it whether you're from Detroit or from Des Moines. He gets how you talk. Okay, so this is the King James. And then there was another one called the New. King James Version, where they took all the historic second-person pronouns like ye and thou, and they replaced them with modern words like you. And that's about the only thing that they changed. And then you have the New American Standard Bible, which was actually translated from more manuscripts, from more geo uh, geographical locations than the King James, but it was translated 150 years later, so it's a lot easier to read. Then you have the, the ESV or the English Standard Version, which was translated in 2001, and it was written to be more readable than the NASB while attempting to emulate the literary beauty of the rhythm of the King James Version, formal equivalency. Then there's another type that's called functional equivalency, or it's also called dynamic equivalency, and it's called dynamic or functional because it's just a little easier to read and understand. And what they did is they still translated from the original texts, so there's still great translations, but they didn't do it word for word. They did it thought for thought. So they took whole sentences and they put it into today's grammar. And some examples of these are the New Living Translation, which particularly if you're a new Jesus person, I highly recommend this for your devotional reading. It's easy to read, really close to the original text. The, the Good News Translation and today's English version are both examples of functional equivalencies. And then there's the one that I actually use most in my messages, and that's the NIV or the New International Version. And, and this one is actually kind of a hybrid because they took the formal and the functional equivalencies and they kind of put them together. Over a hundred scholars worked on this project. So if you like studying and easy to read, this may be the one for you. Then there's one more type, and that's what you call paraphrases. And, and some examples are the Living Bible, the Good News Bible, the Message, and these, they didn't even go back to the original text. They just took the English Bibles and then they reworded them and they made them even easier to read. I, I call these sometimes the slang Bible, okay? In fact, the living Bible was actually never even intended for adults. It was never intended to be studied by grown people. The guy who wrote the living Bible actually did it so his kids could understand the Bible. So parents, if you want a good version for your kids, they might like the living Bible. Then there's the message, 
And the message had great marketing. The message is probably the most popular paraphrase in the world. And, and it's just cool, y'all. It's just, it's great. It's great for devotional reading. It's, it's a little different. Uh, like where it says in the formal translations, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Y'all have heard that verse. The message would just say, bro, let's go to church. I just love that. I just, just love how he's like, let's stop messing, all right? So three types, formal, functional, and paraphrase, all of which are great, but but after that, maybe some of you still go, mm-hmm, cool, loved all that little stuff you talked about. Still don't get it. Still confused, okay? I get that. I, I understand. So here's, here's how I want to kind of wrap this up. I want to actually show you a comparison of a verse in all three formats. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4. This is, here's why. This is a really popular verse that a lot of people already know. They may not know the GPS coordinates of it. Maybe they've at least heard it at a wedding, okay? This is how the King James Version says it. Watch this. It says, charity suffereth long. I don't know why I feel like I have to sound like Oliver Twist when I say it, but it says, <laughs> charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth. Not charity. Okay, let's start that again because I jacked that up. Ch see how hard this is even to read for like a person who's been saved a minute? Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. I love this one. And it puffeth itself not up. <laughs> this is, that's so beautiful. It's just, it's just beautiful, okay? Let's just cut to the chase about it. I mean, it kind of sounds like you have a list, but it's beautiful. It's, just, it's, it's great. Here's how the NIV says the same thing. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud. You go, ha, that makes a lot more sense. I didn't even know what being puffeth up meant. I, and so... So, wow, that makes a, a lot more sense. Also beautiful, just a little more modern than the King James Version. But then you go to the message, and the message says it like this. It says, y'all, I mean, I put the y'all in there just because I'm a y'all guy. It says, love never gives up. It cares more for others than for itself. It doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. It doesn't have a swollen up head. <laughs> there you go. If you don't want to puffeth thyself up, then read the King James Version. If you don't want to be proud, then read the NIV. If you don't want to get a swolled up head, then go ahead and read the message. Whichever one you choose, it's fine. Just find one that you like. Find one that feels good, that sounds good, that resonates, that clicks with you, that works for you. They're all good. For me, I use them all. I study with the formal, usually the ESV. I do my devotions with the functional, usually the NIV. And then I sprinkle in the message because it's just new. It's just fresh. And honestly, a lot of times it's funny. Sometimes I'll read a scripture in the message. I'll just, I'll literally LOL. And I'm not, I'm not hung up on which version you choose. All I want is, is for you to learn it so you can live it so you will love it. Because at the end of the day, regardless of how many versions of scriptures there are, there's only one version of God. And he's looking to form just one version of you. Someone who's open to the things of God, but closed to the things of the world. Is that you? Are you open to the things of God? And are you closed to the things of the world? Because if you're not, you can be before you leave this place today. Would you just bow your heads all across this place? I wonder if you're here and you say, Sean, I have not been open to the things of God, but for some reason right now, I feel that way. That is the Holy Spirit prompting you to partake in something that we call salvation. 
Salvation is when you eliminate your desires and pick up God's desires. Where, where you walk away from your thoughts and you walk toward his thoughts. The beautiful thing about salvation is that it takes people who generally feel alone and it makes them feel in relationship. And so today, I wonder if you're here and you feel spiritually alone, but you need to feel like you're spiritually in a relationship. We're gonna give you opportunity to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That just means that he's somebody who you give control to, somebody who you recognize can rescue you, you surrender your life to him. So if you're here and you say, Sean, I, I need to surrender my life to Jesus and receive him as my Lord and Savior and come into relationship with him. In just a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that by doing two things. First is with nobody looking around, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand and make eye contact with me. Once you've made eye contact with me, you can put your hand down and then I'm gonna ask everyone in here to repeat a prayer after me. So I'm not gonna ask people to stand or walk an aisle or center people out. But if you're here, you say, Sean, I need to receive Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. With no one looking around, would you raise your hand and make eye contact with me right now? Thanks, 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 thanks. Thank you, thank you, thanks, thanks, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thanks, thanks. Thanks. Did you miss anybody? Okay, I'm gonna ask everybody in here to say these words after me. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Change me. Come into my life. Make me new. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer and you believed it in your heart, you just began a new life, a life that walks away from where you are toward where Jesus wants you to be. And so we want to walk that journey with you. If you can help us with that, just take the card that says hello across the top, fill in whatever information you're okay with us having, tear off the bottom part, check the box that's highlighted in yellow that says I'm choosing to follow Jesus, put it in the black buckets when they come around, or take it out to the Welcome Center. We have a little packet that we would love for you to have. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes one more time. I wonder if you're here and you say, Sean, I'm a Jesus guy or I'm a Jesus girl, but you, you know that you've kind of been closed to the things of God. You, you haven't been listening to his voice. You haven't been obeying what it is he's called you to do. You say, Sean, I need to get more serious. I need to go all in. If that's you with nobody looking around, would you raise your hand just so I can pray for you today? Yeah, so God, for my friends in this place, pray blessings on them. God, I pray that you would help us to engage fully in who you are, what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.